Cohen alleges Mr. Trump directed him to violate the law. I, I don't care. All I can say is he's doing a good job as president. Prosecutors argue that Cohen was acting as an agent of the campaign and working to try to influence the outcome of the election when he paid Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Rudy should tell him that just because he's doing it in public doesn't mean it's not obstruction of justice. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I want to get right into my guest today because he's, as always, brimming with ideas. He's David Korn, the investigative reporter and Mother Jones DC bureau chief, whose book with Michael Isakoff, Russian Roulette, is top of the syllabus for all concerned American citizens. We're going to be talking about, I don't want to shock you now, but we're going to talk about Trump's Russia ties. David, welcome back to Trumpcast. Great to be on Trumpcast. So do you feel like things are lighter than they used to be? It used to be an uphill battle to persuade people of the very first principle that our president is a Russian asset. And now I just feel like we don't have to do as much persuading. What do you think? Well, I'm not sure I'd call him an asset. You know, in the old commie days of the Cold War, the Russians used to refer to people as useful idiots, meaning that they didn't always know that they were helping. And it could well be that that's a useful term to keep in mind when considering Trump's relationship to Russia. I mean, there's been a lot of debate and pondering about exactly why he does what he does in all sorts of ways. And that includes what he's been doing regarding Putin and Russia over the last couple of years. And I think there are multiple explanations that overlap. We almost need a term different than the classic espionage terms when describing how Trump has become enamored with Putin and has become, in a lot of ways, and I think this is, you know, an underappreciated aspect of the scandal, he's become a co-conspirator with the Russians in terms of the cover-up. He's colluded with the Russians in terms of denying that the attack in 2016 waged by Moscow actually did happen. And so he's been a disinformation amplifier, echoer of the Russians. And that in and of itself, I think, is a profound act of betrayal. So you and very few others got this story right from the beginning. I know you've tipped your hat to Franklin Farr. We've had him on the show. He was obviously fantastic early on into, as you experienced, the same kind of headwinds of just an overwhelmed media that just could hardly take in an insult of this size, as I I think I I think that's right. I think in some ways the story... You can say it was too big, but in some ways was too consequential for a yeah. lot of people to fully absorb and fully grab a hold of. And our media coverage of the 2016 election was really piss poor in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It didn't take Donald Trump or his background seriously. It was something that I'm very proud that we at Mother Jones did. First story on his Deutsche Bank connection, which still we don't have the full answer on, Mm -hmm. uh, but identifying it as a profound conflict of interest for a president to owe hundreds of millions of dollars to a foreign bank, writing about his ties to organized crime, which in, 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 in past years he often denied, but often sometimes boasted about. Mm. And then um, there were just a lot of aspects of his business 
career that we focused on that just didn't get any real attention from a lot of the rest of the media. And then on the Russia story, I remember in the fall of 2016, September, October, November, I mean, there were signs out there that, of course, the Russians had attacked the DNC and that there might be some ties and connections between Trump and his clan and the Russian government or Russian business interests, and really not many people paying attention to that. Even after the United States government, the you know, the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in on October seventh, twenty sixteen, put out a statement saying that the hacking and the dissemination of hacked emails from the Democrats were all part of a Russian plan, project, scheme to attack the election, the media barely covered that. I mean, of course, that day the Access Hollywood grab them by the pussy tape came out and boom. But even after that died down, you know, a lot of the media never focused on the fact that there was an ongoing attack from the Russians. And, you know, it was because people thought that Hillary was going to coast a victory and the administration was not playing it up. They did put out that statement, but they were worried about helping the Russians if they made too big a deal out of that at a time when Trump was saying things were going to be rigged. And of course, the people assigned to cover the campaign cared mostly about the horse race and the politics. So the Podesta emails that were coming out two to 3,000 a day in that last month after the Obama administration had pointed the finger at, at, at the Russians, you know, that the tidbits, you know, the infighting in the Clinton Foundation, the bank speeches that Hillary Clinton, I think, stupidly not released earlier, that all captivated the attention of the reporters, the political reporters assigned to cover the campaign, and this big, gigantic story that's just sitting there. Mm -hmm. Russia's attacking and trying to influence the election ends up getting very, very little attention. And ultimately, you kind of alluded to this, when Frank Ford, towards the end of the campaign, still before the election, Mm -hmm. is writing about a possible connection through a computer server which still is an open question between the Trump campaign and the Russian bank. And then I come out and I write about the Steele memos for the Mm -hmm. first time, noting that the FBI is investigating whether there's anything to the idea in the Steele memos that Trump has been cultivated and co-opted by the Russians, Mm -hmm. that those stories come out both on the same day, Halloween 2016, and that same night, the New York Times puts out this horrendous piece of journalism, and I don't blame it on the reporters. It was how it was edited and how it was contextualized in the headline, saying that the FBI has found no evidence of a link between Trump and Russia. This is the dread FBI sees no clear links piece. Yes. yes. But- and they, and it was like reporting on a trial before the verdict is handed down. You know, yeah. they were they were in a position to say the FBI is actually investigating this, and yet they said they haven't found anything yet when the investigation was barely underway. And that created a tremendous headwind in the last week for the Trump-Russia story to, to really get any traction. I'm not sure still due to the other things I've mentioned, it would have gotten a tremendous amount of traction um, in that last week, but you never know, and it was a close election. You'll you'll never know what would have happened if not just the Times, but other media outlets throughout the the media had focused on this Russian attack that had already been confirmed Mm -hmm. by the U.S. government. 
it's fantastic to hear that all spelled out. And it is worth noting that Eric Lichtblau, whose byline is on the FBIC's No Clear Links piece, we now know fought for the piece to be much, much more substantial and represent a scoop and had display copy, the headline, the lead all changed out from under him. And I count him among the people who early on sounded the alarm, even though... Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the the book that I co-wrote with Michael Isikoff, we tell that whole story. You know, Eric and Stephen Lee Myers were on that piece. And at first it was killed outright. And then it was only later revived a couple weeks later. And then it was changed in a way to make it sound as if there was no story there when they had been chasing the story for weeks and months and really thought it should be out. But there's another element to the story that people don't often discuss, and that is what happened after Election Day. So after the election, you know, when Trump wins and everybody's just sitting around going, what the F just happened? Yeah. And the whole premise of how the Obama people were playing this and responding to this was that Hillary Clinton would win. And after the election, when the dust settled, she could figure out how best to respond to the Russian attack, you Mm -hmm. know, in terms of countering it, thwarting it, making sure it doesn't happen again, whether there should be any revenge. She could work that out in the absence of the heat and the chaos of a a presidential campaign. So now everyone's thinking, oh, my God, what what should happen? Mm -hmm. But there was very little media coverage or even political conversation in the weeks after the election about the Russian involvement in the campaign. Mm -hmm. Of course, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said there was no Russian involvement. It's crazy even to say this. And the Democrats, who had all the reason in the world to make an issue out of this, weren't saying anything. I had conversations Mm -hmm. with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer Mm -hmm. in the immediate weeks after the election and said, you know, there's an issue here. And it was clear to me that that it had not really hit their radar screen. Now, people within the intelligence community and people in the outer circles, people who are not working for any agencies but have friends within the agencies, were all talking about, oh, my God, you know, we thought there was a Russian thing beforehand, and now Trump won, and we don't know what this means. You know, if he had some connections to Russia, if Russia did intervene and they got what they wanted, there are tremendous implications here that are not being discussed publicly. And it really wasn't until CNN reported that the steel memos were presented to Trump, or at least mm-hmm. the essence of them, and then BuzzFeed published the whole thing, which is something that I had decided earlier not to do, mm. that this became a story then that got some attention. So it really was because of the salacious details. But for the first few months, again, the Times and, and other folks in the media did not go back and say, huh. Look what just happened. We really need to dig into this. Yes. I suspect that one of the reasons that major New York City broadsheet that some people think missed the story, one of the ways it was more than missing the story, and I feel confident saying this because Joey Ito, who runs the Media Lab at MIT, is himself a hacker and is on the board of the New York Times, said to me the week after the election, you know, in the language of hackers, the Times got owned. The Times used to report on the pawns of power, yeah. and now it became the pawn of a hostile foreign power. We spent a lot of time talking about how Facebook was hacked or played or even complicit, maybe how Twitter was, how the brains of Americans were hacked by Fox News. But the New York Times was fucking hacked, too. They took marching orders. They defied the NSA because I was at the Times when we defied the NSA and published WikiLeaks dumps and were all about Julian Assange. Mm. 
everybody loved the idea of doing Pentagon Papers again because defying the NSA is like what journalists live to do. We're always fighting the last war. They were apprised of the intelligence around this stuff. And I will say also Hillary Clinton told everybody what was happening. And bucking Hillary Clinton is something the elite media has always loved doing and bucking the intelligence community. What reporter worth his salt 10 years ago says, well, the NSA told me not to publish this, so we're going to ignore these WikiLeaks dumps? Yeah, I think there was a dilemma for reporters at the Times, and I won't just blame the Times, but but across the board. Yeah. Because here they are being given catnip every day, 2,000 emails from inside John Podesta's inbox or earlier from inside the DNC, and they're scouring it for any story they can get. I mean, this is a wet dream for Politico and for others Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And as a journalist, I believe if information is presented to you, you look at it, you find the stories. And even if it's sort of ill-gotten in a way, that that news still has a right to come out. But what they missed here was the context. And then the question was, what is a bigger story? Is it Mm -hmm. a bigger story that we've gotten an email from John Podester saying that Philip Rons and Chelsea Clinton don't like each other? (laughs) <laughs> you know, and they're complaining about each other or Nick Merrill, whatever, all these internal debates within Clinton world. Is that the biggest story or the biggest story that our own government says that these leaks are coming out as part of a Russian plan to attack the election? Mm-hmm. Now, there really has to be room for both. And we saw in the French election, in which Macron was elected, that there was a Russian attempt to do something similar. And the French media, you know, was able, some decided not to use the hack material. Some decided to play up the fact that there were hacks and that this was apparently a a Russian assault on French democracy. Mm -hmm. It's not an either or. Mm -hmm. And that's the big mistake here. The Times and everybody else who ran after these leaks and just wrote stories on them alone without the context were playing into the Russian plot. And we see, too, I mean, they were very, you know, I don't know if it was WikiLeaks and Julian Assange's decision or they were probed or pushed to do this by the Russians. Uh, but the second dump of the Podesta material in October of 2016 was designed to keep Hillary on the hot seat every single day. They didn't put out all Podesta's emails at once, which they could have, 64,000 of them. They did 2,000 a day every single day for the campaign for the last four weeks, which Mm -hmm. was different from what they did with the DNC emails before the convention. They wanted to try to hog up all the oxygen and keep headlines appearing, Hillary Clinton, blah, 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 email, blah, 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 which reinforced one of her big vulnerabilities. And the media has to find a way to be able to examine the material coming out, but also not to lose sight that this is an attempt to use the media to attack an election. And and as I said earlier, I think you can do that, but there was no desire to do that. I think there was a lot of idea of like, Hillary's going to win, let's just beat her up and attack her. She's a great target. Mm-hmm. And then the Clintons are play loose with the facts. They lie. And this whole narrative is out there. And, and reporters are, you know, are working with it, within that narrative. And then when the Clinton people are coming out from the convention onward and saying, hey, we're being attacked by the Russians because they like Donald Trump. They hate Hillary. Mm-hmm. It was just so easy for people to say, oh, you're just saying that so we don't pay attention to the email that you guys don't like Bernie or that the DNC, you know, didn't play it 
completely even Stephen and when it came to the primaries, which I, I think that was an overstated analysis of those emails. So yep. it's very frustrating to go back and say, you guys really missed it. But in fact, they really, really did. Big time. Huge. Well, disinformation is, I agree. And sometimes I wonder, even though, like many of us, I was flattened in the weeks after the election, I've now been in this complete reckoning that the media has had to do, that social media has had to do, that American citizens have had to do about what partisanship is, what patriotism is, what it means, what corruption is. It's like this late-life adult education for so many of us. I mean, I didn't even really know the Office of Government Ethics existed until 2017. But now I can't remember when I didn't have to do this. And I do wonder if Trump hadn't been elected, if we would even attend so closely to voter suppression and corruption and money laundering. I mean, all this has been going on for decades. Right. The corruption of the Republican Party. Michael Cohen and Elliot Broidy and Steve Wynn were running the RNC. <laughs> and all of them have been brought low by this. And would they have if Hillary had won? I don't know. Now it's hard for me to imagine how things would have been if she'd won. Well, we'd be talking about Benghazi. <laughs> we'd still be talking about Benghazi. Yeah. Well, you know what? Of all the things I miss, if she had won, she's such a good foe to Putin. Sometimes I think of it as the hate that launched a thousand ships. Putin hated Hillary more than he loved Trump and just wanted her off his back on the elections, on the sanctions. Yeah. I mean, I am an unabashed Hillary fan, but I mean, just on that point alone, she had his number. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of things, you use the word reckoning, that need to be reckoned with now. We have a hard time. Even now, there are not a majority, but there's a significant amount of Americans who don't believe that there was a Russian attack or that it mattered. And they're just following Trump willy-nilly on the witch hunt hoax narrative. And we see Republicans and elected Republicans here in Washington who occasionally make the right noises about it, but are not really coming to terms with what the Russian attack means. And they are not truly standing up to Trump with his denials and his attacks and assaults on uh, Mueller. And we saw actually in the House with Republicans doing everything they can to, to run interference for Trump on any real House intelligence investigation. Yeah. We see to this day no true accounting of what happened. And I'll just say, we can talk about this at length, that people should not expect Robert Mueller to give us that full accounting. It's his job to look for crimes where they exist in this controversy and mm -hmm. bring cases. He has no obligation at the end of the day to write a thousand word report telling us everything he's uncovered. He will make informational available in the cases he brings, but not necessarily, you know, material that uh, does not fit into a prosecution. Mm -hmm. And that's the job of Congress. We saw the House Intelligence Committee completely fail at that. Mm -hmm. We don't know where the Senate Intelligence Committee is with its investigation, but we, you know, we're not getting a 9-11 commission-like yeah. approach to this. This is just a small piece of what needs to be reckoned with because Trump's out there basically trying to destroy all norms of how we handle law and order in this country and how the Justice Department works. There are a lot of hammers out there that are waiting to fall, not just Mueller. Michael Cohn spent 70 hours talking to investigators. Mm -hmm. You have the New York State Attorney General looking at the Trump Foundation, which really seems to be involved in just completely illegal, crooked activity. If you have a charitable foundation, you can't use the money to buy a $10,000 portrait of yourself and then hang it up in your own country club. You just can't 
do that. So I think there's still a fair amount of reckoning to happen with or without whatever right. happens with Mueller. And of course, we haven't even begun to mention what House Democrats might be looking at once they get control of oversight committees in Congress. I definitely want to get to what the committees might be up to, but I don't want to leave out of this equation investigative journalists like yourself. I'd found myself saying, like everyone, that the committees have subpoena power, Mueller has subpoena power, and that is always going to put them ahead of what, quote, we have, so you guys and the American public. But there are other ways that you being willing, I always think of Anthony Cormier at BuzzFeed News, being willing to take the 4 a.m. call from Felix Sater, from some little peripheral person who wants to talk and wants to get something off his chest. I know Michael Cohen called a bunch of people to agonize over whether he should flip or not. And those are not the calls that Robert Mueller's getting. You know, it's fallen to a certain kind of investigative journalist like you or Isakoff with a stomach for talking to all these carnies and weirdos and sorting it out. I was just talking to my friend Nick Bauman at Huffington Post. He used to work for me years ago before I came over here. He's a little bit younger, and I pointed out to him that all scandals, all political scandals in Washington seem to end up having these weird casts of character. Yeah. If you go back to Iron Contra, I don't know how much you remember of that, but it involved freelance former generals, General Secor, General uh, Singlaub, arms dealers, Adam Khashoggi, Albert Hakim, weird fundraisers out of Texas, Carl Channel. And if you go back to Watergate, you have mm-hmm. people like Donald Segretti, who was coming up with all these bizarre rat-fucking operations, and, and G, uh, G. G. Gordon, Gordon Liddy, who was like, you know, I don't know, a downgraded federal agent. And you had him saying, I can kill Jack Anderson if you want me to. Right. And they're uh, rummaging through the psychiatrist's office. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And then you had all the, all the, Q, the Cuban Americans from the Bay of Pigs mm-hmm. doing the dirty work. So all these scandals. And now with Russia, you got Roger Stone, Credico, you got Eric Prince, you got all these other weirdos. No, I don't I, want the, listeners to miss an amazing thing that you just said, which is the name Khashoggi. It's just a weird detail of our time that Jamal Khashoggi, the American resident journalist who is dismembered by the Saudis, his uncle, as you point out, was an arms dealer and was yeah. in the news in those times. So, yeah, and yeah, you know, we have this guy, this George Nader character. We don't have to get into details on him, but look him up, people. Yeah. Uh, but one reason this happens, I mean, th- I mean, it's not a coincidence; it's purposeful. When people in government or on political campaigns want to do something wrong, illegal, in the shadowy areas, they turn to people like this. You can't just call up yes. you know, so a legitimate person. You go to Eric Prince and you go, hey, can you take a meeting in the Seychelles for me? Mm-hmm. Or whatever it, whatever it might be. Yes. That's how these people get drawn in. Iron Contra, Oliver North, turned to these outside freelance arms dealers to sell arms to Iran and to get money to the Contras because he couldn't do it within the government. And literally, there you know there are not many legitimate businesses out there for whom this is their business model. Yeah. When you try to do shady stuff, you need shady <laughs> you need characters. Shady. I love it. That good Bartlett's quality quotation. I'll also remember it when I need to do more shady stuff. I want to get back to how you got the story right. And if you'll allow yourself some immodesty, maybe you can tell us how you were on to Deutsche Bank so early on. 
Again, another story that was just hiding perfectly in plain sight. All presidential candidates have to fill out financial disclosure forms, and they, they don't tell you everything you need to know. That's why having Trump's taxes would be very useful. They give you a general idea of where people have gotten money from, who they might owe money to, but very sketchy on the actual specifics. But on those forms, Donald Trump had noted that he had borrowed hundreds of millions of dollars from Deutsche Bank and had done so over a number of years, particularly after American banks stopped lending money to him when he went bankrupt with his casinos in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, at some point, you know, the, the financial disclosure form comes out and reporters spend, you know, three hours looking at it, they get their stories up and they move on. But I think the initial reports might have mentioned the loan, but I just, you know, remember talking to Russ Choma, one of my reporters at the Mother Jones DC Bureau here, and I said, you know what, this Deutsche Bank loan is actually pretty damn significant. This guy could become elected president of the United States, yet he will owe hundreds of millions of dollars to a foreign bank. Imagine the leverage there. And also, this bank in particular had been involved with a $10 billion scheme that involved money laundering with Russian money, had other violations, um, had vi you know was in the middle of a settlement with the U.S. Justice Department uh, over its banking irregularities. So imagine you you owe $300 million to this bank, they're negotiating with the Justice Department that you're in charge of, and it just seemed to me to be a fundamental conflict of interest you know, yeah. with, a, with a real foreign um, element to it. And we called up experts, and you didn't need a lot of expertise here, which was good, and people said, yeah, you're kind of right. <laughs> this is kind of amazing when you take a step back and think about it, and we focused on that through uh, the campaign, and you know, a point of pride afterwards, the the national editor for a major newspaper, you know, told me months later that, you know, after the campaign, they realized that they had not covered Trump sufficiently. And they mm. saw that story in particular and then threw a lot of resources in trying to report and research that aspect of Trump's finances. This is what was so, I think, frustrating about Trump, that so much of what needed to be covered was right the, out in the open, mm -hmm. and it was just sort of dismissed or, or ignored. And years ago, I worked on a political campaign in New York State against Alphonse D'Amato, who mm -hmm. was a Republican senator who had, you know, lots of ties to shady characters from his days in politics in Long Island, some that might have involved organized crime. He had a lot of campaign finance, um, sleaziness, and... My job was opposition research, and I would develop stories about him and pass them to reporters, and they would do their own due diligence and report them or not. And I remember having, and I remember there was not a lot of traction on these pieces, mm -hmm. and I and I figured out why. If you have like a white, you know, tablecloth, mm -hmm. and you spill some wine on it, you go, "Oh my, oh my God!" Everyone can see I'm a slob. This is terrible. It looks like a mess. Yeah. If you have a white tablecloth that has years and years of stain all over it, yeah. you throw another stain on it, and it says, what's the big deal? Right, yes. And yes. so with Trump, that was kind of the issue here. People knew that he had, was somewhat of a sleazy business guy who had screwed over partners and banks and that he hung out with mobsters and that he was terrible with women. All that was kind of known, so all the new stories just didn't seem to add much. And there just didn't seem to be a strong interest in digging into some of the details of his finances that would be particularly problematic 
should he become president? Yeah, it seems like because of tablecloth reasons, I'm going to give it to you as the tablecloth principle. Because of the tablecloth principle, people just didn't pull on the threads that were there to be pulled on. If you did, Frank Farr pulled on the Alpha Bank thing. Others, including you, pulled on the Steele dossier or on Deutsche Bank. You know, I was thinking this is a complicated story the same way that War and Peace is complicated because you can't keep the name straight or the more the same way The Sopranos is complicated because, you know, you have to watch a lot of seasons and know that one is the capo and one is the whatever and remember who's been to jail. But fundamentally, there's stories of corruption and greed and the outlines of them are fairly simple. Yes. What I'm surprised at is how much we missed the big story. But I guess we've agreed on that. Well, we agree on that, but it's frustrating to me that the big picture was missed. We missed the big picture that there was a, or didn't get the, the, the amount of attention it deserved that there was a Russian attack. And what also did not get enough attention was that fact that Trump colluded in the Russian attack. And when I say colluded, yeah. you know, it's not that he sat down with Russian hackers and said, this is how you break into the DNC and this is the document you should get and this is how you get it to Julian Assange. No, what 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 he did was first... Um, he kept signaling to the Russians, I'm your guy. He did that with this business deal that came out when Michael Cohn calls Putin's office and says, hey, can you help us with the business deal? Mm-hmm. We want to do, while he's running for president. Right, he's this, running is, for president. this is the biggest, you know, political conflict of interest, I think, in modern time. You can't point to any other candidate who had as much of a conflict of interest as Trump had at this particular point in time. This in and of itself should be a gigantic scandal. And we knew about this over a year ago when it first came out, not before the election, and I don't think people fully absorbed that. But then you get until into the summer of 2016, and after it's been reported that the Russians have hacked the DNC, and then they start putting things out in June of 2016, you have the Trump people saying again and again and again, it's not happening. They literally call it a hoax. The DNC is making this up. And they do this after they've had a meeting with a person, a Russian emissary, the famous Trump Tower meeting, Mm -hmm. in which they were told this person is coming to give them dirt as part of a Kremlin plan, a secret Kremlin plan, to help Trump during the campaign. Mm -hmm. Now, they claim they didn't get anything useful out of the meeting. But by taking the meeting Mm -hmm. and keeping it quiet, they basically sent a message to the Kremlin. We're happy to take your help. Mm-hmm. We're happy if you're doing this. We're not going to blow the whistle on you. You keep helping us. It's our little secret. And then when they come out publicly and keep saying the Russians aren't doing this, imagine if you're Vladimir Putin watching. I'm doing this. I'm worried about getting caught. But my good friend Donald Trump, who just asked me for business help, is now there amplifying my disinformation when I say we're not doing this. Yeah. So they're they're helping the cover-up. And yeah. even after Trump... In mid-August 2016, he gets a briefing from the intelligence community, as candidates get, and he's told, you know, we believe that the Russians are doing all this. And he comes out and again and again says afterward, listen, it's not the Russians. Now, the Russians know by this point in time that the U.S. is on to them. Director of CIA Brennan has already called his counterpart in Russia in the early August and said, we know what you're doing. You better cut it out. Mm-hmm. So they can assume that Trump knows this, that they've been told Trump has been told this, and yet Trump is out there publicly saying again and again, there's nothing going on here. Mm-hmm. So that is encouraging Putin, probably giving him more reason and incentive 
to do anything to help Trump. And it's like a guy standing in front of a bank that's being robbed. He's told the bank is being robbed. He sees the bank is being robbed. But as people walk by and they say, what's happening? He says, nothing's happening. It's all fine. It's not happening. There's no bank robbery here. So yeah. even if he's not in on the caper, even if he didn't plan how to enter the bank and how to steal the money, he is helping the caper. He's helping the bank. In, in our book, um, Russian Roulette, Isakov and I call it aiding and abetting. You want to yeah. use the word collusion, conspiring? I don't know. He, he aided and abetted an attack on the United States. And to me, that's enough guilt right there for people to rend their garments, go running through the streets screaming, and for somebody in Congress, even a Republican, to give a damn. I'm with you. Good. <laughs> WikiLeaks. So one of the ways that Trump potentially was complicit or abetted the computer crimes was in his open, full-throated encouragement of WikiLeaks during the campaign. I want to hear about your own relationship with WikiLeaks. We often have federal prosecutors on the show, intelligence community-linked people, people who in the past would be associated with the right. And you are associated, and Mother Jones is, with the left and other left outlets like The Nation and The Intercept have been less willing to turn on WikiLeaks. And in fact, in some cases, it seems like, well, obviously, The Intercept is going to stand by even Russia, right? So were there some awkward, I don't want to say cocktail parties, but whatever lefties (laughs) do. I think WikiLeaks is a complicated question. I think the idea of a transparency organization of the type that Julian Assange talked about when he started was by and large a good thing, but I think his pre-Russia methodology was often problematic. If you get a a treasure trove of classified documents, I don't think you can just dump them on the internet. We saw with some of their early dumps of cables that it ended up putting dissidents and democracy activists in repressive countries at risk because it outlined how they were talking to American diplomats. I do think you need to go through documents carefully if you're going to put them out, make them public, that you are responsible for that. And it's, you know, and and that they did not initially do that with some of their dumps. And it showed, I thought, a a reckless disregard. Mm -hmm. I, I, and then when you you talk about the the, the Russian side of the equation here, I think, you know, if, if someone gives you these emails and so on, I think you need to be able to contextualize them as well. Now, you're not going to necessarily blow a source, but um, you might at the same time at least acknowledge that you're being used in a way. I'm I'm working on a piece now that is predicated on some hacked emails, and in the story itself, I am noting that these emails were hacked. I, I, I don't quite know... The source of the hacks are are pretty widely assumed and suspected, so I I will state that. So I think that's often part of the story now if material is being hacked and is being used by one side against the other. I also thought that what WikiLeaks did at the end by strategically disseminating information, the Podesta emails in the last month, to cause maximum harm to the Clinton campaign, Mm -hmm. belied their stated mission of being a transparency organization. If you're fully transparent and your only goal is to put out information, then mm-hmm. if you have 60,000 documents, you put them all out at once and let people go through them. You don't yeah. keep dribbling it out for political 
gain. So that, to me, indicated that Assange, who had stated quite explicitly that he thought Hillary Clinton was a tremendous threat and needed to be stopped, that she was the warmonger, that he was doing something beyond a whistleblowing, transparency advocacy, or what you might call journalism, mm-hmm. uh, which he sometimes mm-hmm. has, has you know, claimed that, he's, that he, what he does is journalism. Mm-hmm. So I think he caused a problem for his own case. And at the end of the day, I mean, I know people on the left who still look at him as a champion of this, that, or whatever. But at the end of the day, he was a witting contributor to this Russian plan to stop Hillary Clinton from becoming president Mm -hmm. and helping Donald Trump become president. So he, you know, bears some responsibility for that. Yeah. As we figure out all the people who flocked to this story, like Oliver North to Iran-Contra, it's really fascinating to find out where they started and how they ended up there. And that brings me to the Steele dossier. People keep asking, I have my own answer to this, but I bet you have a better answer. People keep asking, how is the Steele dossier held up? To begin with, even calling it the Steele dossier is a little bit misleading. Okay. I mean, I use that term because that's the common parlance now. I heard you say memo. Yeah, but it was a series of memos. Sort of like for journalists, imagine sending your editor a memo every couple of weeks just to, or a couple of days to say, this is what I'm hearing, what I'm looking at, what I found without confirmation, and it can go in different directions. And that's kind of what it was. It wasn't like a finished work product, and here is the dossier that proves X, Y, and Z. Now, there's, you know, and, 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 and I, you know, and if anyone is interested in this and hasn't read the full memos, I, I encourage them to because they, they go in a lot of different directions. It's not all about Trump. There's a lot of material in them about how the Russians are responding to initial reports that the Russians are attacking the election. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. I mean, I don't, again, this stuff is not confirmed, but that there was some, you know, conflict within the Kremlin about how far they could go and what would happen if they got caught. Mm-hmm. But in in some ways, uh, the the first Steele memo, which basically says that there's been a Russian plan to cultivate and co-opt Trump over the last five years or so, holds up pretty well. They talk about, the memo talks about how the Russians occasionally dangle business opportunities in front of Trump. Mm-hmm. And you can certainly look at the deal that we've been talking about recently in 2015, 2016, that he pursued as a candidate as the, perhaps fitting into that. The tower. Um, the tower. They talk about having compromising material on him. Mm-hmm. Now, everyone's, you know, goes on about the P tape, which may or may not, you know, exist. I mean, in our book, you find a timeline that makes it seem a little less, you know, more unlikely than likely that it happened, but there's no definitive word one way or the, or the other. Here's where I plug Russian Roulette, which is a fantastic page turner just for our listeners. Oh, good. Thank you. But, you know, the key thing is that Trump had made a lot of trips to Russia over the years. And we do know, any intelligence officer will tell you, that people are routinely filmed, watched, videoed, mm-hmm. sound recorded. And if he did anything of, of, of an untoward nature, that, that would be sitting in somebody's file somewhere. So it could well be that there's other material. And we do know that a kind of frenemy of Trump, a guy named A.J. Benza, who was a mm-hmm. gossip columnist in the 90s, got into some fight with Trump and Howard Stern's show, a stupid celebrity fight in the early 2000s. And he said, you know, I remember you used to tell me you going to Russia to do all these things with women there who wouldn't do it in, in the States. 
So we have indication that Trump, you know, made trips to Russia and that was part of the itinerary. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of the big ticket items. Mm -hmm. You know, they talk about there being an exchange of information between the Trump campaign and Russians. We know there was at least was an attempt at that mm -hmm. with the Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016, which is around the time Steele was writing the first memo. So there are some points of intersection. There are some things that may not be true or not confirmed or maybe overstated. But I still think overall, the fact that he identified a troubling pattern of interactions between Trump's circle in Russia remains intact and to a degree substantiated. I think that's right. You guys do a great job on sorting out a little bit more what happened during those exciting hours. Maybe he just got McDonald's and sat on the couch. Last question. I was going to ask you if you ever doubted yourself on the way because the story's so weird. If you ever went crazy or lost your bearings or orientation. I I assume now by finally talking to you that you have kept your head in so many stories that you probably were able with this one. But this story is vertigo to me. I, I'm just too damn reasonable, Virginia. Um, yeah. But I will say this, you know, one of the great sort of themes in some of Alfred Hitchcock's film is the guy who knows what's really happening and no one believes him. Um, yeah. Right. You know, the, the, you know, watch the rear window. You know, you yes, see a murder, yes. right? Jimmy Stewart. Um, <laughs> and so I, 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 there were two points. Like before the election, um, there were, were these indications that there was an investigation. There was something in the air with Trump and Russia. I was talking to people who had been in intelligence, and now we're talking to their friends who are still in the intelligence community. And they were saying, yeah, everyone's scared, everyone's worried, they think there's something there, but no one's leaking, no one's coming forward, no one's saying anything, we don't really know what it is. And I felt like, okay, I kept calling and trying to make headway on the story, which is how I eventually got in touch with Steele. But that was like, okay, why are not more people doing this type of moment for me? And, you know, it just seems to be this idea that there's a Trump-Russia connection or story to be had is out there, you know, the, I didn't know it at the time, but the Times was looking at it. Of course, Frank Four was. And it just felt like there should be more people doing this. And then after the election, I think it was like the week afterwards, the head of the NSA gives a talk at a public conference mm -hmm. and basically says, yeah, Russia got what it wanted out of the election. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing that up and saying, this is like a gigantic story. And yeah. nobody sees us. It's like, why am I the only one who's banging this drum? I you're mean, Jimmy I mean, Stewart in Rear Window. I, I mean, I, I felt that way a little bit. I said, you know, we have, you know, the NSA director saying this. We had Harry Reid, the you know, the senator yeah. beforehand, saying we need to know about what's happening. And and when someone like in that position says that, it usually means I got a classified briefing on this that I can't talk about. So I'm going to raise it as a question: Is there something going on with Trump and Russia? When he's been told. That the FBI is looking into this, right? So there were all these telltale signs that were not fully being picked up on. And then after the election, I go, oh, you know, shit. I mean, if this was true and then it kind of succeeded, this should be the number one issue, particularly for Democrats, but for everybody. Yes. And the fact that it just wasn't going anywhere made me wonder, damn, I've been doing this a long time and part of my, you know... Part of my, you know, tradecraft, I suppose, is trying to find the stories that other people 
are missing or not paying attention to. I don't work for the Times. I don't work for the Post. I don't work for a network news show. So my value added in the media universe is to find things that other people have not paid attention to or have been dismissed or, or downplayed and dig into that and report on them and get it onto the stage. And here was like, I was saying, Jesus, you know, nobody else is really motivated to, to see this, this, you know, what could be and what I now believe fully is the biggest, most consequential political scandal in American history. I mean, the Tea Party Dome. So what? Somebody is making money because the interior department is trading land, you know, giving off, you know, contracts to the, you know, friends of the administration, even Watergate. They got nothing, you know, they broke into it, but Nixon was going to win and they got, you know, it was terrible to have a president who was a crook. But this is a foreign power intervening in our election in a way that I would argue is tremendously consequential and has changed the course of American history. That's a great place to wrap up. My guest today has been David Korn. He's the author of Russian Roulette. Thank you so much for being here, David. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Virginia. And that's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. We are not averse to feedback of all kinds. Also, give us a rating on iTunes. Any rating, five. Any rating, five. I'm at page 88, and the show is at Real Trumpcast. You can follow us on Twitter, and you got to join Slate Plus. It's just $35 a year for the first year. It's an amazing deal, and you get all our shows ad-free and plenty of other digital swag. Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by the great Melissa Kaplan with help from Merit Jacob, and I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.